Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, October the 28th, 2023, the last Saturday in October. And it's less than 72 hours away from that wonderful day of the year, Halloween, the day where we're all supposed to be spooked and scared and filled with chocolate. And I'm thrilled that my old friend and sparring partner, Bethan Patrick, uh, Bethan Patrick, is back from Europe looking uh, extremely well, not at all scary. And she's joining us to talk about scary books to read for Halloween. Uh, Bethan, uh, welcome back. Wonderful. We've missed you the last couple of weeks. Uh, oh, thank regular. you so much, Andrew. Very happy to be back. And I can say, too, that uh, they were having a beautiful, you know, warm spell in fall in Central Europe. And so uh, we spent our last three days in Prague. And I can't think of a place that is more beautiful, yet also more suited to something spooky than Prague. I mean, I would love to see a really, really great, you know, literary ghost story set um, at the castle or in the old town. Well, the whole town is one long literary ghost story. Yes, it um, is. Bethan, uh, Bethan, um, before we get started on the books, what do you normally do on Thanksgiving? Whoops, th not Thanksgiving. That was a, a Freudian on Halloween. Uh, Halloween. <laughs> uh, you know, I have never been much of a person for any kind of theme holiday, but Halloween, I, I do have children and Halloween for children is so much fun. So we've always, you know, had our kids in costume and going around trick-or-treating. And I love seeing the kids trick-or-treating as well. So that's generally what we do. Um, I know one year uh, I was given the year off from the candy donations so that I could relax because it had been a big, you know, parenting year. And it was so nice to sit back on an evening like Halloween with everyone's candles and pumpkins around all the decor and sit in a chair with, you know, a glass of port and read. I remember reading something really good and really spooky. And so I just think Halloween, when you're not actively involved in the trick or treating or in a party or what have you, is a great night to curl up with something very um, eerie or suspenseful. And that's why I put together this list. I know what I'm doing on uh, Halloween. I'm having uh, I'm having my COVID and flu shot, which is oh, uh, you and me both. I haven't had them yet, so it's time. Yeah, it's scary in its own sense, but it is. Um, not as scary as some of the literature you've lined up. With. Scary books. Before we get on to, you've got as always uh, eight fascinating books. But um, before we get on to that, do should books scare? And, you know, the, the, the cinema, whenever I go and we see the previews, they always seem to be dominated now by horror, scary films. Yeah. There's always been a place for literary horror, uh, but it's never very central in the canon, is it? You know, horror has a, I think, long history in literary history. I know, for example... Um, it is really interesting to see that Alice 
um, McDermott, who's got a new novel coming out next week called Absolution, recently read Frankenstein. I'm not sure if it was when this book came out or when the last novel of hers came out, but she'd never read it before. And that is one of the great classics of horror, right? It's something that is very, very important. And people have always liked to be scared. Sometimes they're scared by Oedipus ripping out his own eyeballs. Sometimes they're scared by Beowulf fighting, you know, off Grendel, but they like to have a little bit of fright when they're in a community, when they're in some kind of safe place, you know, either the Mead Hall or um, a, a, a nice home or their own little corner of the world. But, you know, I don't think that horror is something new. It might be in terms of Hollywood that things are getting darker on the screen. But I, I especially think that all of the books on my list, Andrew, have precedents, have literary precedents. Yeah, I'm going to... Yeah. Get, get to those uh, but before we do just one other thought when you go to the cinema you're experiencing collective horror everyone screams at the exorcist or whatever they're watching whereas with a book it's obviously more solitary i guess there are communal readings but mostly we as you say curl up with a book right uh, on our own and i always think with a book there's more potential actually to scare because when you're on your own by definition so many of the books and the stories in traditional horror uh, are, are rooted in the idea of solitariness and us being alone and scared of something we don't know or see. Right. Right. Um, I do think that that is a very important part of what's going on in tales of horror, suspense, and the supernatural, especially post-COVID. I do think the fear of being alone, of being isolated, of finding yourself without any kind of humans around you, that's becoming something that people are writing about more and definitely exploring. It's happened in the past too. There have been other horrible um, pandemics and epidemics and global you know, uh, health crises. So I don't want to either make too much out of COVID or make too little out of it. But I think it is showing up in some of these books from 2023. Yeah, and uh, and of course, when you look at the news, the news is so horrible these days that actually any horror film or, um, or book is, is a release. Let's get let's begin with yeah, absolutely. Your, your selections. Uh, I was thrilled that Jeanette Winterson, uh, uh, someone I'm familiar with, uh, someone who's somewhat of a friend, uh, She's been on the show before. She has a new collection of ghost stories put out by uh, our friends at Grove. Uh, very historical, isn't it, uh, the, this collection? It is. And I'm so glad you've spoken to Winterson before. I have been reading um, Winterson since Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Yeah, me too. I love that. I, I know. I'm just amazing. And here's the thing about Winterson. She's so versatile. She writes memoirs. She writes novels. She writes essays. She writes short stories. And so I think she has a really singular perspective um, as a person, a queer person who was brought up in this Pentecostal household in England, mm. you know, you don't have as many fundamentalist Christians, at least today in England, as I, I know you're an American, um, Andrew, but it's um, just something that is not the same. And so you don't have to have read the rest of Winterson's work to appreciate Night Side of the River. These stories are 
absolutely amazing. They're so different. They're so delightful. And she has one with the title of app hyphen arition about an app that gets downloaded, downloaded and allows someone possibly to communicate with someone from the dead. And I thought, how has no one used that title already? Winterson is just so she's clever, but also deeply intelligent. And it's all about boundaries for her personal boundaries, geographical boundaries, political boundaries, um, and also the boundary between this world and the next. And I think that perhaps some of the what she absorbed when she was growing up with her adoptive parents who were so strict and such believers is, if not belief in, you know, an afterlife or that sort of structure, at least a respect for what it can do in a story. And that makes Night Side of the River one of my favorite books for this fall, for sure. Really excited. Uh, and, and the boundary also between the physical and the digital. Uh, last, yeah. last time I, I actually spoke in an event a couple of, a few years ago, actually just before COVID with Jeanette mm -hmm. on digital. She, her last book before this one was on uh, AI in which she's yeah. surprisingly optimistic. How many of the stories focus on AI? You, you talked about the app, uh, the app story. I know she she deals with AI, dealing with the the boundaries between AI and reality. Is yeah, she it's a few a little of them. It's more, not all. Um, yeah. Do you think she's slightly less optimistic about AI in this book? Hmm. Now, this is an interesting thing. Not all of the stories deal with AI. Uh, there are just enough of them that you think, oh, gosh, I'd love to see a Jet and Jeanette Winterson episode of Black Mirror. So she has some fun with it. Um, but she doesn't have AI in all the stories. Some of them are sort of straight up traditional gothic atmosphere. And then there's also in Night Side of the River, four essays from the author about her own encounters with the supernatural. Did they really happen? Did they not? How does she feel about them? And it's quite interesting. I've never seen that before in a book of short stories like this, in a collection, to have this nonfiction, more analytical writing. Well, not analytical, more, um, but at least more memoir driven, you know, more, more, Mm, um, I think the thing with Je Jeanette, she's always doing things. She's yeah. she seems to be someone who's bored unless she's doing something slightly different. I think so. That doesn't mean she just uses it <laughs> as an excuse. She's also steeped, it seems, in that literary tradition. I know she she's fascinated with the 19th century uh, yes. Anglo-British or British tradition of of horror and gothic, yes. and particularly uh, female writers. She is. And I think that she's right to do so because, of course, they were left out, um, the female writers, so much in that time. And some of it is evocative for me of the wonderful show with Eva Green, Penny Dreadful, you know, uh, using those those things that we've all seen a million times before, but taking a different look at them looking at them a little slantwise. And so there are some very fun stories in here that don't have any technology in them at all. They're straight up ghost stories and they're very effective because she is such a marvelous writer. Does Ada Lovelace show up? I know she, uh, her last book focused a lot on Ada Lovelace, the woman who invented software, the daughter uh, of Lord Byron. Yes, no, sadly not in this collection, yeah. but Ada Lovelace is, you know, uh, again, mm. just yeah. a, a, maybe hard to put uh, Ada Lovelace in a horror story. 
another collection of stories with someone else who's been on the show before, Paul Tremblay, the beast you, you are. Um, oh, what, that? what taste we have, Andrew. I'm telling you. I'm so glad you had him. He's a terrific, terrific writer and a really, really nice guy, too. And so he's known for horror novels. Um, the last one, I believe, was The Cabin at the End of the World. Loved that book. And so... This is, he's got one of the stories in this collection that I think will really hit home for all of us who have lived through the past few years of the global pandemic. It's called The Last Conversation. And I don't want to give any spoilers. It's really hard to know in this conversation if it really is the last one or not, but it is Tremblay saying, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this. I'm not going to dwell on it again, but I am going to acknowledge that this has affected us all so much. And he is someone who loves both the work of George Saunders, master of the short story, but also Shirley Jackson, who's a master of atmosphere and horror and suspense. And he's trying to sort of pin things down. So The Beast You Are is a novella. It's a it's quite a bit longer than the other pieces in the collection. Um, some people will love it. Some people will find it really discursive, but I loved it. And uh, it is a very, very frightening story that has a lot of Shirley Jackson in it because it's about a place where monsters um, or beasts live in harmony with humans as long as they can occasionally feed on the monsters that live in town. And it's very, everything in Tremblay is very, I think, philosophical. It's all very um, filled with thought and, and with layers of what are we doing? Um, how do we grieve? How do we love? You know, what frightens us and why does it frighten us? Not just let's make someone, you know, jump when we say boo, but let's figure out what it is that is triggering the person. So really, so really the fun you writing. Are by Paul. He, you couldn't have a better name for a horror writer than Right? Tremble. I mean, what a what a trembler that one is. We exactly. are speaking. Um to Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic at the LA Times. She's put together eight books to scare us over. Uh, I was going to say Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'm not going to fall into that and make the same mistake twice on Halloween. <laughs> um, Beth Ann, uh, in your discussion on Tremblay, you mentioned Shirley Jackson. Of mm -hmm. course, many of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with Jackson's book, The Haunting of Hill House. It's now yeah. out as a penguin classic first published in 1959 interestingly enough uh that book has been rewritten by elizabeth hand a haunting on the hill and that's another of your recommended books how do you rewrite a horror book a classic like uh, jackson's the haunting of hell house in this case elizabeth hand i think has very 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 smartly and wisely not tried to out Jackson, Shirley Jackson. She hmm. pays homage in the title, in the location. It's not the same exact location, but in a house on a hill, a big old house on a hill. Um, uh, well, it is the same location. Excuse me. Rewind, scratch that. It's the, the same location with the same, um, because on the first page or so you see the tree um, that Eleanor Vance in uh, The Haunting of Hill House uh, engages with. And in this case, 
Elizabeth Hand has actually chopped it down. And what she's done by showing us that is saying, I am not telling the same story that Shirley Jackson did, but I am telling a story that is about four people in this haunted house. It happens to be a, a playwright and three people involved in her production. One of the actors, um, a collaborator, I think someone's friend. And the four of them, like Eleanor Vance in the original, are all going to be psychologically affected by what goes on in this house on the hill. In the, they're going to be haunted on the hill. And uh, it's very creepy. And Hand does a marvelous job in creating her own version of that atmosphere that Shirley Jackson's so good at. It's not a follow-up and she doesn't try to do that. And again, I think that's a wise choice. It is um, something that has to do a great deal with also artistic theft. There's almost a bad art friend story in here because the playwright stole an idea for the play that really brought her to fame from someone else. And that someone else is going to come back to haunt her. It's yeah, there's no AI in this. Maybe uh, there's nope. a warning about all these AI platforms stealing from, from writers. And speaking of haunted houses, mm -hmm. another very, uh, not this one, not uh, another very scary, um, another very scary, uh, um, Whoops, I'm trying to find it. Another very uh, scary... I oh, yeah, this is one of my faves. Uh, I've somehow... I've put it in twice. Let me just find it. It's by Trang, uh, and, I, and I've, we've done yeah. this one before, done and I've mispronounced the names. So I'm not even going to try. Tell us about uh, this one while I find the slide. It's called She is a Haunting by Trang Tan Tran, and um, it is technically a YA or young adult book, but listen to me readers, the best YA is just as good as the best adult fiction. And this novel is not just for kids. It's about a Vietnamese American young woman named Jade Nguyen. And she goes back to Vietnam to help her father. He's restoring a French colonial house, a manor house. And of course, there's conflict right there because they're kind of estranged. Her sister is back there with her father. She hasn't seen him for a long time. And then she gets involved with family goings on and the house seems really haunted and creepy. Jade is also queer. She's bisexual. And one of her father's friends um, is a woman named Florence and Jade becomes attracted to her. And of course, her father is very traditional and, you know, not friendly to homosexuality. And so there's so much tension building up in this house between different family members, between um, different ideas of how it's okay to live your life, about what kinds of goals you should have and what you should pursue. And it really, really is um, very uncanny. So even though it's labeled YA, if you want a great Halloween read and you want something that's also, I think, very relevant because it talks about, you know, immigration, it talks about family dynamics, and it talks about, you know, queer themes. I think this is a perfect, perfect um, uh, but it is it also, and, and the reason why I did that as a segue, this mm -hmm. is a haunting, it's because the house itself 
comes alive in a way. That's right. That's right. And so we've got Hill House with its creepiness. We've got this French colonial house. And that adds so many layers, of course, because, you know, we know that imperialism has affected so many places around the world and in, in very, very bad ways. Um, so that also brings me then to the one that you did put up, which is Monstrillo. And I want to let people yeah, know. Here we have Monstrillo by uh, a, a youngish uh, Mexican-born yep. debut novelist. Yes. Created a beautiful monster. This was the headline in the Times. And I thought you were going to review it. It was actually reviewed by somebody else. I know. They let other people review things, that, you know. And they I, shouldn't, I, though. You should really be the only reviewer. I'll have I to know. have a word with the LA Times. Thank you so much. Please do. But Monstrillo is so good. And I am like, you were trying to find your slides. I'm trying to find my, here are my notes. There we go. So first of all, I want you, can you go back to the cover for a second, Andrew? Yeah. For Everyone people uh, listening, cover. you'll have to imagine the cover of Monstrillia, which is actually not a very slightly scary cover, but it looks it like is, but look at this little creature. Look at the little creature. That's yeah, I saw Monstrilla. the one at the bottom. It looks like he's out of, uh, uh, what's the movie? Uh, you know, the, um, the, not a scary movie. Uh, you know, the one with the the goblin, what's it called? Uh, You're not thinking of gremlins. No, I'm thinking of something else. Anyway, go on. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this is amazing. So uh, there's a woman named Magos, and she has a son who is born with a deformed lung, just one deformed lung. He lives until 11. And then unfortunately, he dies. He, You know, his body he doesn't have enough breathing apparatus to support his body. She decides in a very superstitious and also kind of magical hope, she cuts a little piece of his lung out of his body and saves it. And she saves it in a jar and nurtures it. Okay. Uh, until. Oh my God. That's already terrifying. It's terrifying. And it grows, it grows into this little tiny monster living and breathing. Okay. So I was thinking of, by the way, the movie I was thinking of, I don't know how I forgot. It shows what a bad memory I have is Lord of the Rings. Who was that? Gollum. Of course. Gollum, We're thinking yeah. of so there's a sort of a, a slightly Gollum like uh, there you go on the front of Australia. It is. It is. And what happens with this? OK, so there's a couple of things about this book that's so are really interesting. First of all, it happens in four acts and it goes from Mexico City to Brooklyn to Berlin and back to Mexico City. And it's all about the monstrosity of love. You know how overwhelming love is from this mother who cuts out a piece a piece of tissue from her dead son's body to the monstrosity of trying to love when you're you know uh, young and gay and not sure of yourself to the monstrosity of everyone's dark side um and that's what monstrilio the little monster the lung monster represents is you know the the animal instincts that we all have and so it's a, a very weird folklore narrative that Gerardo, um, I'm going to say his name, I'm going to botch it, but Gerardo Samano Cordova, that's it. Um, you did he, a better job than I would. That's thank right. you. He has put it into such a great modern frame. This does not feel like something that's part of the past or that's something that's being dredged up in a dusty book of, you know, folk tales or anything. It really feels very Mexican, but also very relevant to everyone. Um, it is so great. And I want to say one more thing about it 
Kirkus, which is known for being sometimes a little negative, called it Kafka-esque. And Ooh. since I've just come back from Prague and I went to the Kafka Museum and followed in some of Kafka's footsteps, I'm going to say, if that is not high praise, I don't know what is. So there must have been some humor there as well. Definitely. One uh, we're speaking with Bethann Patrick, book critic of the LA Times, who's lined up eight particularly scary books to read for Halloween. Uh, one thing that won't scare you, I hope at least, is uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent new publication. Going to run a short ad for them. And then we'll be back with Bethann. We've got three more scary books to deal with before we sign off and put on our Halloween uniforms and get out and give out candy and all the rest of it. So we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're talking with our old friend, a regular uh, partner on the show, Bethann Patrick, the book critic of the LA Times. She's lined up eight exquisitely scary books to read this, um, this Halloween. Bethann, politics with you, I think, is always bubbling beneath the surface. You always have a particularly interesting political read on, on the books you recommend. I wonder if... Uh, the, uh, the sixth book that you're recommending, mm -hmm. Bad Cree by Jessica Johns, seems a, a kind of p political scary story, is there? Or are there certainly some political ramifications in Bad Cree? Well, you know, one of my political uh, ideas behind these eight books is two things happen in October and, think, and November. We have what we call used to call the Columbus Day weekend, and then we have Thanksgiving. And both of these holidays, uh, now we do call the Columbus Day holiday the Indigenous People's Day. We still haven't quite figured out in the United States what to do about Thanksgiving and some of the colonial patriarchal ideas that overshadow indigenous communities with it. And so I wanted to choose authors from a lot of different kinds of backgrounds who are now Americans and publishing. And Jessica Johns, I'm good, I, I wanna make sure I tell this correctly because the book is called Bad Cree, but I am not sure if she is technically Cree or not. She says in her bio that she is a Nehiyat auntie and member of Sucker Creek First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in Northern Alberta. Now, um, so Jessica Johns is an indigenous American, um, a Canadian American, a North American, who is writing a book about what it means for someone who is also indigenous to go through a ghostly, creepy experience. And so it's set in Canada. It goes between Vancouver and Alberta. And it's all about a young woman named Mackenzie from a Cree family whose grandmother and sister have both recently died. And the sister died 
near a lake and in sort of mysterious circumstances. Uh, and the mysterious circumstances may be in Mackenzie's mind or not. And so there's definitely a lot of malevolent forces that she has to battle. But those malevolent forces aren't necessarily about gore or violence or guns. They're also about imperialism, colonialism, and the way indigenous groups in the Americas have been treated by European settlers. And so one of the wonderful things about Bad Cree, and it's very atmospheric and it's a great mystery and anyone who likes you know, to follow a mystery will enjoy it, but it's also about what happens when you're back with a, a, a community. And in this case, when she's back, when Mackenzie is back with her Cree relatives in Alberta, in Northern Alberta, it's almost like she's being enveloped and almost like she's being, I don't know, made invisible in a way. And this is both a good thing and a bad thing, Johns seems to say in her writing about being indigenous. You've got this huge community, but it's also very claustrophobic. It can be also very chaotic. Um, that's what the critic in the Globe and Mail in, Ca in, in Canada talked about. It's um, something that people who are indigenous like that critic say, we know this and we welcome it, but it's also very, very tough. It's a difference. And so traveling between the modern quote unquote world and the more traditional world is a big part of Bad Cree. And I just think it's, it's again, very, very spooky. And, yeah, and, and ghosts are supposed to be invisible and invisibility is supposed to be scary. But of course, there's an invisibility about the so-called native peoples of North America you can't talk, I think, uh, horror books without thinking about women, uh, right. often the, the victims of the fear and the criminality of, of some of these books. Uh, lone Women. Uh, I, I was thinking about the title by Victor Lavelle and your, your penultimate recommendation, um, uh, Bethann. You think lone women, it should be lone woman, but of course, lone women means a, a, a collective of women who are alone. You know, and again, don't want to spoil anything in this book. It starts out in a very, very scary and violent way. I mean, basically, you see Adelaide Henry, the protagonist, who is an African-American woman, and she is basically setting fire to a bed with her dead parents in it, okay? Mm -hmm. And off she goes to Montana um, with a trunk. She's got this steamer. In, in 1915, right? Yes, in 1915. And what happened there, and you can probably see it on the screen, is that... Um, People, including lone women, were offered 320 acres of their own. And if they could survive for three years and make that land habitable, then they would own it. So that is an incredible chance. This is one of those American stories, you know, um, all these land rushes that have happened throughout our history. So Adelaide decides, this is it. I'm going to Montana. I am taking my trunk with me. And she decides to keep her secrets with her as well and not tell anyone about them. Now, when she gets there, 
it's really tough to survive a winter in Montana. We all know this from watching Yellowstone. <laughs> and so she's out there as a lone woman, singular, but she does meet other people. She does meet other people from underrepresented groups, from marginalized communities. And yet somehow she's still keeping these secrets. Then of course they're going to come out eventually. Um, there's a, a lot of hiding and a lot of hiding in plain sight, which I think is one of the things that Laval really works well with in this novel. He is so good. Um, the is your first time, I, I'm not familiar with the writer. He's the okay. author of The Changeling. Is he, yes. is he a... Uh, tell me a little bit more about Victor Laval. Victor Laval um, is a black man and an author who is very literary, um, but also not fussy. His prose is straightforward, even when he's describing something supernatural or something very violent and bloody. It is um, a, a really plain spoken way of writing, very elegant. And all of his books, I, I'm trying to, this is driving me crazy because I can't think of the last one I read. Um, shoot, it's, uh, but believe me, he is one of the best. He is really up there. Um, he's one of the, the best, I would say, horror and supernatural writers out there today. So do not miss Lone Women. It's, it's really good. And it also gives you a historical perspective, which is never a bad thing to pick up. I mean, I'm all about the politics sometimes, Andrew, but I'm also about the history. And the final book. Uh, yeah. is Silver Nitrate, uh, new by uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia, a New York Times bestselling author of Mexican Gothic. Um, this is a, a, a book about the film industry in 90s Mexico. We, we've done some horror books actually set in Mexico City. You talked about Prague being a place ideally suited to horror stories. Is there something about Mexico City because of its layers of history that lend itself to horror horror novels and horror stories? I think so. And, uh, you know, I have not been there yet. That's that's definitely. Oh, my I, God. You got to go I, there. I know. And someone I know was recently um, spending some time there and did go on a bit about the layers of history and how that made her experience um, going into different parts of Mexico City, really, really interesting. So I think you are correct that that is essential to this particular book, but also to Moreno, Gar Moreno Garcia's work as a whole. Um, I'm a big fan of what she's doing. She takes different genres and remakes them with the Mexican-centric um look, but she never trivializes it. Mexico never becomes like another formulaic part of her books. Um, Mexican Gothic was about 1950s. Um, the, uh, the silver mining um, part of Mexico and a young woman who has spent a lot of time in Mexico City and doesn't really understand, you know, the country, the, the more rural parts of her world. And then she's also written um, Velvet Was the Night, which is a noir set in um, California with Mexican-American protagonists. I hope I'm getting that right. But she's also written The Island, um, the, not The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, yeah. which is her sci-fi take. 
she has one coming out next summer that is sort of a Hollywood Technicolor um, movie romance. So she's having a great deal of fun. And I want to point out that Moreno Garcia has a PhD and is very smart. She can talk about why she has taken on these genres in one of the most deep and uh, analytical ways I've ever heard an author speak about their own work. So this one, Silver Nitrate, clearly she's playing with this um, old technology of using silver nitrate on celluloid films. And it added something, but it also made the reels themselves highly combustible. So Silver Nitrate is a terrific title. She's talking about an elderly film director um, and he's got these two young people who are his sort of, they're not his acolytes, but they're big fans of his work. And when they get a chance to meet him, um, it becomes an occasion for some creepy things to happen. And again, this is a, a tough one to talk about without giving things away. So the um, protagonists are Montserrat and Tristan, and they kind of have an, a, a Sam and Diane. Yes, that was great. You know what it reminds me of? As I said, uh, this, this layered nature of Mexico City. I'm not yes. sure if you're familiar with Leopoldo Gout. He was on the show last year. On, uh, he has a, he had a new book out last year called Pinata, which is about. Ooh, uh, I don't know this one. I'm so excited, Andrew. To Lea, Mexico City. He's a Mexican who I think also lives in. Was one of these people who lives both in New York City and in New York, uh, in Mexico City and in New York City. Mm -hmm. So that might be an interesting book to read in conjunction with uh, Sylvia Moreno yeah. Garcia. And it, it sounds like there's a Hollywood. Compo it could be a Hollywood component uh, of all the books um, that we've dealt with. I'm, I'm not going to tell you, which, I'm not going to ask you the dumb question of which is the scariest, but what's the most suited, do you think, to celluloid? What, what of all these eight books? Oh, you know, what which a good would question. make the best movie? What a good question. Scariest movie. I think Silver Nitrate would make an incredible movie and not just because it's about the movies. There is just so much going on here in terms of Mexico City, in terms of young versus old, um, mm. man versus woman, um, you know, uh, the creepy things that are happening, the secrets that are happening. But A Haunting on the Hill could make a, an excellent movie as well. Oh, and now you, you, you've, you've cheated. I know. Sorry. Well, you go choose haunted on the hill or haunted, uh, haunting, haunting right. on the hill or uh, or 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 the uh, silver nitrate. Silver nitrate. Okay, silver nitrate wins the award for this week, and we're going to be back uh, on Friday of next week of this coming week. We're going to be talking if we survive uh, if we survive Halloween, Bethan. We're going to be talking all well. Absolutely, we will. And we're going to be talking a multi-layered Orwell. We're going to be talking about several books. And, you know, hopefully I will survive the chocolate extravaganza that yeah, I'll be well, having. Don't, don't leave me on my own. I can't do it without you. Uh, we <laughs> I'll may, be we may have to relay it. We'll have to do a special show in Mexico City. Oh, that sounds great.